Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. We always talk about asset allocation being the central decision that an investor makes. Several pieces of research, academic research, industry research, have actually concluded that asset allocation is the primary determinant of a return experience over time. So that means that an investor's mix of stocks, bonds, and cash is ultimately what will determine the return experience as opposed to what stocks you pick, what bonds you pick, and what cash instruments you pick. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Joining me today is Daniel Reyes, who is Head of Investments and Head of Investment Strategy Group Asia-Pacific at Vanguard. Vanguard's a pioneer in what are known as ETFs, and Daniel is here to explain a little more. Hi, Daniel. A pleasure to meet you. I feel a pleasure to meet you as well, and uh, thank you for having me. Now, I just wanted to find out a little bit about where you come from and how you got into finance. I believe you were born in El Paso, Texas, and I was talking to another guest, and um, he went to university in Texas, and he was talking about um, how Texas feels very good about itself, and it's uh, and especially with its waffles, lots of Texas-shaped waffles, I believe. Yes, there there are many things that <laughs> Texans turn into Texas-shaped fill. Um, <laughs> you can see Texas coasters, you can see Texas mugs. Um, Texans tend to be really proud of being from Texas as a, as a MI. I think, um, you know, nowadays, one of the things that Texans pride themselves the most on is the, uh, is their Texas style, American style barbecue, yes. um, which I'm a big fan of as well too. So I really, really, really enjoy that part about being a Texan. <laughs> okay. So tell us about growing up and, um, getting into finance. I believe your father gave you a bit of a push along in that department. Yeah, my father was a kind of introduced me into the concept of investing into finance. I always knew that it was, um, you know, looking at stocks and following stocks was always something that he was interested in. It was just kind of like broad, basic market awareness. Um, but to be honest, as a kid and as a teenager, I didn't fully understand the concepts behind investing and how to do it effectively. Um, fortunately, you know, my path with finance and investments started when I was in university formally. Um, there, I was able to take some, you know, basic courses in finance, investing, understand statistics. And it was there that I really kind of honed my thoughts around investing and trading and just really started to get more and more in depth on that topic. What sort of things were you reading and learned to help you learn about uh, stocks and the stock market? Yeah, as a teenager, right, one of the things that, that I did do is, um, you know, fortunately, my father had a, a family subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And it was interesting reading just from the, from the purposes of understanding the news. And I would read the economic stuff, but didn't quite understand what I was, what I was reading. It wasn't until I got to university and got into my economics courses that some of the stuff that I read in the Wall Street Journal really started to make sense. So it was good to kind of keep aware of things like um, the Wall Street Journal um, and at the same time pair it with kind of the academic kind of more foundational learning. 
Let's talk a bit about Vanguard and how Vanguard developed. It was um, the founder was someone known as Jack Bogle. Is that correct? Yes, Jack Bogle is our visionary founder. So tell us about how he came up with his um, pioneering investment style and um, uh, a commitment to lowering costs. I believe was a big part of it. That's right. That's right. Um, um, Jack's story with investing and economics, I think, goes back to his university days at Princeton. Um, that's where he actually studied economics and investments. Um, as a matter of fact, Jack actually wrote his thesis. His thesis was entitled The Economic Role of the Investment Company. And two of the things that came out of his, uh, his thesis um, is he became attuned to the idea that if a fund claims to be consistently superior or better than market averages, is that it was likely an exaggeration. And then his second kind of insight that he had in his thesis was that the cost of funds management mattered. And that at the time that he was writing his thesis, his view was that cost of running funds and managing funds was too high. Um, I think it's the combination of these two ideas that we see alive and well in Vanguard today. Jack obviously was a really, really prominent figure at Vanguard and has been in, has been a prominent figure in the industry. And you know, he always t- talked to employees at, at Vanguard. We call the employees crew members because of our nautical theme. But he always talked to employees and crew members about giving investors a fair shake. That was what he was really passionate about. And I think it's fair to say that the idea for founding Vanguard um, would have been influenced by his early observations in university about the fund industry. What was the process that um, took him from the theoretical side to actually creating the company and implementing that vision? Yeah, so so implementing that vision actually happened around 1975. That's when Vanguard began its operations. And that happened after um, Jack, in his own words, had a, a separation from Wellington management. He likes to refer to it as, as um, he was fired with enthusiasm. And I think it really gave him an opportunity, you know, once he was no longer at Wellington management, to take a step back and thinking about founding a firm that would embody the principles and the observations that he had, you know, as a young student of the industry, he coupled his emphasis, you know, in founding Vanguard, he coupled his emphasis on costs and challenges without performing the market with a mutual structure that Vanguard has today. It's a firm that that's owned by its investors. So many people aren't aware that when you invest in Vanguard fund, you're actually an owner of the management company. And so for us as crew members, that means that there's clear alignment in whom we serve and really allows us to focus on the client's best interests. When he was going through this process, he was um, 44 years old, I believe, with six children to feed and unemployed. It was quite a step. Yeah, that, 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 would, be, that would be a leap. That would be absolutely <laughs> a leap for anyone in that situation. <laughs> um, but you've got to admire the passion and foresight for him. You know, when he, when he started Vanguard and, you know, when they um, had the first index fund available to retail investors, and many people referred to that as Bogle's folly. I, I think it actually had an underwhelming degree of investment right from the get-go. But Jack has always been a, a man of, he always was a man of his convictions. And over time, I think the, the Vanguard story as a whole, right, goes to prove how his his contributions helped to shape the investment world. 
and ultimately to um, to have a positive impact for the end investors. One of the criticisms, I believe, was that um, he was thought to be un-American because by just uh, tracking an index, it was a lazy way of trying to make money where the go-ahead attitude for Americans is to strive to do better than the market. Yeah, there, there was, um, I think there were, there were certainly other firms, brokerage houses that referred to the concepting of indexing as Americans. And I think Americans tend to pride themselves on always kind of you know, being better than average, trying to be the best. And the concept of indexing and capturing, you know, the market average didn't seem to resonate with many investors at the time. Fortunately, over the course of history, as we have more information about the funds management industry, the investment management industry, it's, it's proven out that consistently beating the average is actually quite a difficult thing to do. So by simply trying to capture the average, and you would actually wind up beating most of your actively managed mandates. You know, oftentimes what we hear at Vanguard and what Jack used to say is a lot of people spend their time trying to find the needle in the haystack when Jack's philosophy and Vanguard's philosophy has always been by the haystack. Have you met Jack Bogle? I actually have met Jack Bogle. I am. Um, I was really fortunate, you know, when I started at Vanguard, I've had a couple interactions with him, but the most memorable one, um, was actually my first interaction with Jack. Um, when I first started at Vanguard, a couple of weeks into joining, one of my colleagues actually introduced me to him in the galley. The galley is Vanguard's, it's what we call, again, with the nautical theme, it's yep. what we call the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Jack used to have lunch in the galley virtually every day. So you would see him there typically eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a salad. And I found him by the salad bar and my colleague introduced me to him. And I remember Jack asked me, you know, where did you come from? First, he said, welcome to Vanguard. And he asked me where I came from. I told him um, that I had just joined from executive compensation, from an executive compensation consulting firm. And Jack being Jack, with high degree of interest in things like corporate governance, immediately asked me some very polite but pointed questions about the executive <laughs> compensation industry. <laughs> and, and it was just amazing to me that he was willing to engage, um, willing to engage in a conversation with a, with a brand new crew member. And I remember, you know, we wrapped up our conversation. We had a good discussion right there, you know, next to the salad bar. And, um, you know, so I went back to my de- desk, Phil, and I immediately thought, like, how many times am I going to get to interact with someone like Jack? At the time, I was 24 years old. Right. And so I, I shot him an email um, and said, you know, I've always been interested in the, in the concepts of corporate governance. You know, is there anything that you can do? You know, what do you think about topic X? Um, what should I be reading? And within hours, um, Jack Bogle shot me a note back and he answered my questions. And he said, if you're really interested in, in learning more about the topic, I'm going to send you a book via inner office mail. Um, I wrote the forward for it. So now that's why you'll know I'm sending this book, but it has some really great concepts in it. And I, I just remember being, you know, a 24 year old, freshly starting, joining the company to have someone like Jack be willing to take the time out to have a conversation with me, to engage in a, in a kind of a, in a, in a dialogue, just really made an impression on me about him as a person and about Vanguard as a company. That seems to be a very important aspect of very many um, successful investors. They're humble and they're not 
shy about talking to anyone where they can get useful information from. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true, right? I think successful investors, they have a certain sense of curiosity Mm. and they're willing to take in information from wherever it comes. Jack always struck me as a person who had that. It didn't matter what what rank you were in the organization. If you had something interesting to say or something valuable to contribute to a discussion, um, he was always willing to listen. Okay, you've started investing in the stock market. Now, how do you track trades, dividends and distributions and all those other goodies? Throw away those clunky spreadsheets with ShareSight. I have my portfolio and ShareSight and everything is automatically recorded. ShareSight is pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Save four months on an annual premium plan. Go to sharesite.com slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a seven-day free trial before taking advantage of four free months. That's sharesite.com slash shares for beginners. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's get on to ETFs. Can you give us a quick beginner's explanation of what an ETF is and how does it work? Sure. So I'll start with what it actually stands for. The concept of ETFs um, stands for exchange traded fund. And, you know, the way I typically describe ETFs to someone who's just getting into investing is that they're a pooled investment fund, meaning it has many, many securities or many, many different investments within the ETF. And it's similar to a, a fund but unlike a fund, it's intended to trade like a stock. So that means that you can buy and sell the fund throughout the course of the day on an exchange. Because uh, mutual funds traditionally or generally are very difficult to buy and sell um, at particular, only at particular times of the day. Is that correct? It, it, exactly. So, so it, what's, what's referred to as an open-ended fund is a fund that it is priced at the end of the trading day. Mm-hmm. And say, for instance, you submit an order for a fund in the morning, the price that you're going to get for that open-ended fund is actually whatever the net asset value is of the fund at the end of that day. With, with an ETF, if you submit an order for that ETF, you get whatever the prevailing market price is at that point in time on the exchange. ETFs are different, one, I think, through a couple of different ways, right? The first and the primary one that most people are, are aware of is the ability to transact throughout the day. And then when you think about ETFs, ETFs typically have a different set of, of considerations. So for instance, as an ETF, right, if you're trading it like a stock, an individual investor should be aware that there could be brokerage commissions associated with trading that. Now, more and more organizations, particularly in the United States, are actually moving away from that and making ETF trading free, but that is a possible expense. So whether you've got your brokerage account at Vanguard or any other firm, right, that's just something to be aware of. The other kind of difference where you think about an ETF and when it, when it comes to buying an ETF is, you know, if you're buying a fund, 
you get the price, you get the net asset value, the price at the end of the day. And an ETF has something that's called a bid and an ask spread, right? So if you're the buyer of an ETF, the price that you pay is actually the ask. It's the price that the seller is asking for that ETF. And if you're the seller of an ETF, you get the bid price. That means that that's the price that the buyer of the ETF is willing to bid. So there's a little bit of a different terminology that investors in ETFs need to be aware of. And the narrowness of the difference between that bid and that ask, it's what investors refer to as the bid-ask spread, Mm -hmm. is a way that we think about whether or not there's sufficient liquidity for that ETF. It's one of the ways. Can we explore indexes? An ETF will track an index. How does that work? What's in an index? Sure. So it it, it depends on the index itself. Let's start with the the very simplest kind of index, the S&P 500, for example, and how that... um... Right. So in, in ETF, the underlying strategy is oftentimes, it doesn't have to be, but it's oftentimes designed to track an index. So an ETF that's designed to track the ETF, the S&P 500 index, will hold a basket of securities that represents and tries to mimic the return as closely as it possibly can of the underlying index. So the underlying index, for instance, the S&P 500, the Standard & Poor's decides what actually goes into that index. They've got index criteria. And it's the fund manager's job to try and create a portfolio that replicates that as closely as they possibly can. So that's a that's a what's known as a passive ETF. Is that the case? Yes, that that's exactly right. It's it's passively trying to track the index. Is that the reason why the management costs are so low? Yes, that's a big part of why a management costs for uh, for ETFs can be so low. So when you think about that relative to an active strategy, an active strategy has to have an active strategy, even within its, even if it's in an ETF wrapper or in a fund wrapper, has to have all the resources for individuals, humans, to identify securities to pick that are going to outperform the market. That's a resource-intensive process, and ETF by comparison is less resource-intensive. Right, it still takes skill yeah, in order yeah. to execute an ETF well, mm-hmm. but the amount of resources necessary to do that aren't as great as in an active strategy. So Vanguard does have active and passive ETFs. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we do. On the active side in the United States, um, we call them active, but there are particular products. So, for instance, there are active ETFs that are designed to provide exposure to certain investment factors. So there's factors such as value factor, momentum factor, um, the liquidity factor. Those are all concepts that as an individual dives more deeply into uh, investing are great things to consider. But for someone just starting out, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the right starting point for the investment process. No, no, that's uh, there's so many flavors of ETFs. Exactly. There? But um, exactly. the passive is something that we would recommend as being a good starting point for um, getting into the investing journey. That's right. And, and the other thing to note about ETFs in general is that um, they can represent a broad basket of securities across different asset classes. So for instance... You have stock ETFs, you have bond ETFs, um, some ETFs 
um, provide exposure to a basket of currencies. So there are a variety of different flavors that investors can think about if they, if they want to use an ETF to gain exposure to different asset classes. Just can we go back to asset allocation and different assets? Um, what is an yeah. asset? What, what is an asset and why, uh, why would you want to be in something apart from the stock market, for example? So the, the concept of asset allocation, we always talk about asset allocation being the central decision that an investor makes. Most of the time, investors are actually trying, they're, they're worried about picking winners and losers. Several pieces of research, academic research, industry research, have actually concluded that asset allocation is the primary determinant of a return experience over time. So that means that an investor's mix of stocks, bonds, and cash is ultimately what will determine the return experience as opposed to what stocks you pick, what bonds you pick, and what cash instruments you pick. And each of those assets has a different role to play. So for instance, if an investor has a particular goal that they want to purchase a house or they're saving for the down payment on a house in the next year or two years, investing that money in equity ETFs is likely to be much more risky because you're signing up to to capture kind of the equity, what's referred to as the equity risk premium. And that inherently comes with some market volatility relative to taking that money and investing that, for instance, in short-term bonds or investing that in cash. So you think about each of the different asset classes and the role that it plays in your portfolio. Most of the time, you know, when you think about bonds in a portfolio, we talk about bonds being there to serve as ballast to the volatility that can come with equities. So for instance, um, if someone were fully invested, 100% of their, their portfolio was in stocks, they're likely to have a more volatile experience than if they had a portfolio that was 70% in stocks and 30% in bonds. So just to summarize there, a different asset class is going to provide an exposure for your investments that um, will hopefully balance out um, between different times of, in, um, in the market when markets are up or down, for example. That's absolutely right, Phil. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, I'll just I'll just point say at this point that sometimes I am going to come when someone starts saying some jargon. I just sort of jump in and say, "Can you explain what that means?" <laughs> if if I get into jargon, just let me know. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. no. It's been very yeah. clear. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned volatility. What is volatility? So volatility, I think, is um, there's an academic way to define volatility, and then there's a way to define volatility from the perspective of the investor. When we define volatility from an academic perspective or from the investment management perspective, we think we look at what's called the standard deviation of returns. And so that basically means, you know, if you take the average, right, if you take the average return over a certain period of time mm-hmm. and you compare each of the data points over a certain time period to that average, how, how wide is that distribution of returns over a particular point of time relative to an average. That would be a simple way to kind of explain it. And then if you talk to investors, investors actually might define volatility as anything that falls below a certain return threshold or any time the return gets negative. That's the volatility that, that they live and they, they, that they live with and that they feel. So it can be defined in both senses, 
but from a practitioner standpoint, we tend to 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 refer to it as as the former in, in the academic sense. So let's talk about all the different flavors of ETFs. What are some of the, okay, we've talked about asset allocation and different asset classes. If I could throw that over to you, the different kinds of flavors and themes that are available. Yeah, the, the primary one and the way that they're different, right, is we already talked about the, the asset class exposure, but within ETFs as well too, you can have different versions. Um, so for instance, if you're just thinking about the equity, the stock market ETFs, you can have ETFs, for instance, that are broad market, like an S, like one that's designed to track the S&P 500 market, uh, S&P 500 index. You can have some sector-based ETFs. So individuals, it's not uncommon for them to go to their brokerage firm and see the technology industry ETF. Um, ETFs in international exposures so um, sometimes you'll see a broad, for instance, total all world XUS. So it means it provides you exposure to the rest of the globe, excluding the United States. Um, or you can actually see some very, very specific ones. So for instance, um, ETFs that target exposure to Japan or um, exposure to China. So there, there are a whole bunch of different flavors and we haven't even begun to dip into active ETFs versus passive ETFs. There's a lot of choice out there. <laughs> That's an amazing amount of choice when you start uh, digging into it. And it's also particular sectors and tech sectors and robotics and so many others as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, um, the amount of product proliferation that we see in ETFs um, is astounding. They can be mm. thematic ETFs. They can be ETFs that are intended to cap capitalize on a particular theme, mm -hmm. ETFs that provide exposure to the market. When the market goes down, the ETF goes up. Uh, those, again, are not the starting points that we would recommend, <laughs> recommend for people that are just getting into investing. But, um, but investors do have a lot of choice. What started out as Bogle's folly is now, on some measures, a couple of ETFs are the most actively traded instruments on the market. It's come a long way, hasn't it? It absolutely has. Yeah, it absolutely has. And, and I think it's, it's important to think about and, and to understand kind of the forces associated with why ETFs, I think, have become so, so prevalent. I, I think a lot of people might argue that ETFs have become so prevalent because it's unbelievably difficult for active managers to outperform over the long term. Mm -hmm. And that may be partially true. But at Vanguard, we actually think, and, and I know, you know Jack was a big disciple of, the, of this theory, is that ETFs in part have, have become so prominent because they tend to be lower cost. And the cost matters hypothesis is actually something that investors in the United States have really started to reconcile that costs matter when it comes to investing. Jack's notion of kind of like the cost matters hypothesis is um, is effectively an analog to what academics refer to as the efficient market hypothesis. The efficient market hypothesis effectively says the market represents the collective wisdom of all the investors that are participating in that market. It's hard for any one person to have better information than the collective market. So the market prices in all of that collective information. And because it's priced in all that collective information, it's really, really difficult to pick something that's going to outperform. Jack's 
cost matters hypothesis is actually slightly different in that he said, you actually don't need to have any sort of view about whether or not markets are efficient or inefficient. Whether markets are efficient or inefficient, everyone has to grapple with the idea that investors as a, as a group must fall short of the market return by the amount of costs that they incur. And it's led him to him and Vanguard to focus relentlessly on costs, whether they be expense ratios, brokerage fees, transaction costs. Jack often used to say that, um, that investing is unique. Um, unlike other things that you, that you buy, such as cars, where you assume that there's a price quality relationship. You know, think of any time that you've heard someone say, you get what you pay for. And Jack would say, investing is different. And he used to say, as a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. You get what you don't pay for when it comes to investing. Because every dollar in fees is a dollar that's not compounding into the future. Absolutely. And if you think about it right, I think what's well understood in, in investing is this concept of compounding returns, right? The, the miracle of kind of compounding returns. Mm. If you have high costs, costs compound as well too. They compound into the future and they eat away at your returns. You, you, you've had a lot of experience and expertise in the markets. Do you have any bad investing stories that... Um... I don't know. It's just something that we can warn listeners about, that uh, it's a trap that they shouldn't fall into themselves. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share plenty of my bad investing stories. <laughs> Everyone has them. Oh, there's them. so many more stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has them. Um, my first experiencing with investing actually didn't go well. And once I had learned a little bit about the, the concept of investing, and maybe this is related to a general theme of overconfidence, hmm. um, I remember um, my father recommended a, a stock to me um, and I took all of the earnings from my summer internship and invested them basically in one single stock. Phil, I proceeded to lose virtually all of that money. <laughs> and despite that experience, I think it really, one, uh, was a humbling experience because, you know, I thought I had, I had gone off to school and I learned a little bit about the topic. I do definitely think that, you know, it taught me about the power of diversification, which is why things like a broadly diversified mutual fund or a broadly diversified ETF can be really powerful for an investor. Um, it's the concept, you know, um, you know, many people have heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket, mm -hmm. right? An ETF can provide you with exposure to many, many stocks through a single purchase. And and be humble. <laughs> don't put too Absolutely. much. Don't put too much uh, store in your own ability to trade. Absolutely. The um, you know, when we when we talk about investing at Vanguard, one of the things that we often tell tell um, retail investors is, you know, focus on the things that you can control. Right. I think oftentimes, Phil, people worry about things that they that they can't really influence. So, for instance. Uh, they're worried about which stock is going to outperform, mm. whether or not uh, the markets are going to go up or down. Mm. Um, mm. They're going to go up or down, and you can't do anything about them. So, as as an investors, we as as retail investors, we all tell we always tell people have really clear goals about what you want to accomplish that are measurable, right? Mm -hmm. And then once you've established that clear goal, we encourage people to implement a portfolio that is balanced. It's broadly diversified. Again, it wouldn't be Vanguard if we didn't talk about implementing that balanced diversified 
yes, in a yes. low cost way. And and oftentimes investors think that cost simply means you know, brokerage transactions. It means the expense ratio of the fund. But we also encourage investors to think about the cost of things like taxes, mm-hmm. right? So all those things can eat away at the returns of a portfolio over time. And then, Phil, the last thing that we tell investors is to focus on this concept of being disciplined, right? As markets go up and down, it's very, very easy for an investor to think about abandoning his or her plan, right? Say, for instance, an investor who is going into the GFC, right? And you're in February of 2009 or March of 2009, and you've been through a pretty bad return experience. Um, it's, it was tempting for many, many people to say, I can't take this anymore. I want out, right? And to transition their equities into cash. Now, had they done that, right? And we've actually looked at the numbers. They would have missed out on the subsequent rebound of the equity markets. So by actually not sticking to their plan, mm. by not rebalancing back to whatever diversified asset allocation they had come up with, they missed out on the return experience that followed the GFC. And, and if you look at a chart, say over a 20-year period of, um, uh, say, the S&P 500, uh, the uh, GFC looks like a minor blip in that um, zoomed-out <laughs> context, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. Daniel, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me, Phil. Really appreciate it. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greek-alicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't.